to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today, we get to speak with Raul Powell, who is the founder of Real Vision. Raul is a former hedge fund manager turned entrepreneur. After managing a global macro hedge fund called GLG Partners for a number of years, Raul didn't like the way the hedge fund industry was going. So at the age of 36, he retired to the coast of Spain, where he started independent financial research. But by being a macro trader at heart, Raul always looked at things from the big picture perspective. And he quickly realized that mainstream financial media was not providing the real value that it should be to its viewers. It was then that Raul decided to take matters into his own hands and launched Real Vision, which is an entire suite of video, audio, and newsletter resources all available for free and on demand. And he's essentially going up against all the largest media companies in the world. Real Vision is a very high quality production. And through his network, they were able to land interviews with some of the top investors, hedge fund managers in the world, many of which who never do public interviews. Let's get on to the show. Hi, Raul. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the J. Kim Show. Happy to have you here. Thanks very much. Um, so you have a pretty unique background and uh, this is a podcast where we cover both entrepreneurs and investors and you happen to be both. <laughs> so maybe you can give our <laughs> audience a, a little bit of a background and introduction and how, uh, what got you into investing and then what led you further down the path to entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's quite a long story. Um, I've been in the financial markets now for 27 years. I started my career after university teaching traders about technical analysis, uh, working for a company called Dow Jones Tellerate. So that was my first job, but I managed to talk my way into a job at an investment bank, a British investment bank, where I started my career basically in the derivatives markets. But over time, I kind of evolved and realized that the biggest growth area and the biggest focus for me was hedge funds. And particularly, I found that I was driven towards the macro hedge fund investment world. But that's kind of how my brain worked, that big picture, multifaceted mm. puzzle. So um, I, after moving a few banks, I ended up running the hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives at Goldman Sachs. Uh, and then um, hopped along to the dark side and um, started a global macro hedge fund <laughs> for one of the uh, largest hedge fund firms in the world at the time, GLG Partners. So I launched and managed the Global Macro Fund for a while um, and then decided to opt out of the rat race and uh, moved to Spain and started writing macroeconomic investment and research for the world's biggest hedge funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, government organizations, high net worth family offices. Um, And I did that for about 10 years um, living in Spain and then for some reason had a crazy idea that the media industry could be disrupted and that Investors and the average man really had been let down over 2008, 2009 by the media and the banks. People came to Mm. me and said, why didn't we know what was going on? And I'd been writing about it. You know, I was at the the, the center of the financial system. I knew exactly what was going on, as did most of the people around me. But once you moved away from the financial system, nobody really knew. I thought that that was really wrong and something should be done about that. So that kind of stuck in my mind for a while. 
And then I started observing the changes in the media industry. YouTube launching was the big one, where suddenly, wow, nobody needs a TV license anymore. Television is not what we think it's going to be. It can be anything different uh, across multi-platforms. So um, stupidly, without knowing anything about media, um, four of us got together, um, four founders, and launched Real Vision, which is the world's first on-demand TV channel for finance. Um, and that was three years ago, and it's growing enormously since. So it's been one hell of a journey so far. It's incredible that it's it's only been three years ago because I feel like it's been around. I feel like I've heard of Real Vision for it seems like years and years and years now. But that that just means that you guys must be doing a good job marketing. Um, so I want to take a little bit of a step back. You have a pretty uh, interesting background in history. Um, you know, coming out from sort of the larger institution. I know that uh, you know. I, I I spent a career uh, on the on the south side. I'm 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 working at a small hedge fund now myself, um, so I'm I'm acutely aware of sort of your, your career path and and some of the things that you probably experienced along the way. But I know that for a lot of people, it takes a catalyst. So for me, it was sort of 2008, um, and 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 that sort of uh, financial crisis that made me realize, okay, maybe I don't want to be on the sell side anymore. So maybe I want to. Uh, explore something else. Um, but it sounds like you sort of preemptively just kind of got fed up with it. Or what, what, what exactly was it that made you want to just kind of pack it up and go sit on a beach? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, so, some, you know. so there were two big shifts that happened in my career. Um, again, I just think of everything in macro terms. And I was at Goldman Sachs in 99, 2000, and the period prior to that. And I just saw the huge explosion and over-financialization of the, of the US economy and the global economy, and I just thought it was going to be unsustainable. Um, and so that made me want to switch towards the opportunity set that was offered on the buy side by starting a hedge fund, because I thought we were due a recession which came, uh, gave me a tremendous trading opportunity. Um, however, after about three or four years of running a global macro hedge fund, I realized that that industry was on its way out too. Um, and that was basically because the pensions industry had moved in and were now the main giver or um, you know, giver of assets to the hedge fund industry. And those guys mm -hmm. didn't want the returns that hedge funds used to produce. They didn't want 15% you know, volatility and you know, a 40% year being an amazing year. <laughs> what they wanted was something that looked like a bond. And what they also wanted was a monthly NAV. And what that was is, is I think, the antithesis of what macro investing and, and good hedge fund investing is all about. So it forced people all in the same time horizon. It lowered returns massively across the industry. And I thought this industry is never going to be the same industry again. And so that's why I decided to opt, opt out of the rat race and move to Spain, because I realized that it, things were changing. And the very first Global Macro Investor publication that I wrote was called The Death of G7 Macro. And that theme has continued to play out as the hedge fund industry has become under more and more pressure from returns because they just can't generate the returns with the kind of investors that they have and the kind of markets we're seeing now too. That's quite interesting. So when you when you went and you kind of took your hiatus and you were sitting in Spain uh, and you started Global Macro Investor, that was that it was and still is uh, quite an institutionally geared product. Is that correct? Yes. And for me, again, everything is a macro view with me. So why did I why did I start Global Macro Investor? 
simply because there was a hedge fund bubble. The returns of the hedge fund business were falling. Therefore, don't be in a hedge fund. Sell shovels to hedge funds. So the business was sell all of the acquired experience over my 20 years in the industry um, via the global macro investor to the industry. And that was, again, really, I was very lucky. It was a great decision. I wonder what it what, is there something that you can perhaps pinpoint in from your childhood or your upbringing or maybe just an interest that you had that led you to always be taking this sort of macro view it seems like every even in in your career and your life you always see things on more of a bigger picture than most of us is there something that you can pinpoint that to you know it, that's a good question i have no idea a part of my background is a very mixed background half indian half dutch uh, and kind of spread con- across continents which has always given me a slightly broader view uh you know and i've moved country a few times when i was young but i think it was really when i first i think it's because i'm a very visual person so i walked into financial markets and suddenly showed somebody showed me the power of charts technical analysis and I realized that I could see every market in the world in the chart. And there was some textual information within that chart that tells you what's going on. So suddenly, you could pretty much tell what was going on in any market in the world in a second. So that kind of that resonated with me. And then I was lucky. I got introduced, particularly when I, I moved. Um, I was running the team at James Capel, which was a, a UK mm-hmm. stock brokerage firm, part of uh, HSBC at the time. And I moved the team across to uh, NatWest, one of the UK banks. And, and as we were moving the team, we, we had a three-month period where we couldn't work. Um, suddenly, they hired 120 people from Morgan Stanley, um, and they turned a UK investment bank into a US investment bank. And that's when US investment banks were kind of taking over the world. Mm-hmm. And I remember I walked into the office the first day, and uh, the guy who's now running the business said, Raoul, you know, you were kind of doing international equity derivatives. We're kind of changing how things are going. What would you like to do? And I said, I'd love to just, I'd, I'd love to hedge funds. I said, that's what, how I think. That's what I do. He said, fine. Who do you want to know? I said, I gave him a list cheekily and said, Paul Tudor, Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, right. you know, more uh, capital. The legends. He goes, yeah. he said, fine. And I know them all. Come over to New York next week and I'll introduce you. And so nice. my, first, my first meeting was with Paul Tudor Jones, and, and that was my career. You know, suddenly I realized that I spoke the same language, saw the world in the same way. You know, I started with a chart. I always saw the big picture. It was all about the knock-on effect for me, not about what's happening right here, right now, but the kind of probabilistic outcomes in the future and the world, where the world is going. And so, I don't know, it just really suited me. That's so interesting, um, and I feel like uh, I feel like they're the the macro hedge fund uh, and and to the audience. Sorry, we're getting a little bit uh, financy here. We'll <laughs> we'll switch gears shortly, but I feel like uh, well, I feel like that they're you know like you just rattled off three of the legendary macro traders uh, of all time, and I feel like. They're, it's kind of almost a dying breed. Like, I mean, there there's still are a handful out there. Um, obviously, those guys are somewhat still involved. But as far as like the younger people that come up, I feel like it's it's one of these things where you have to go into these funds and actually get apprentice and actually learn how to be a, a global macro trader or investor. And a lot of places, you just can't learn that craft anymore. Um, so, no, it's... it's- it's, it's very difficult. And I get you know young kids all the time emailing me, so how do, how do I get into the business? I said, you can't, because the industry is shrinking. So even legendary guys who are slightly newer, well, not that new, but people like Alan Howard, you know, mm-hmm. basically his fund is a bond. 
people yeah. don't look for those returns. That whole macro world is not there anymore. You know, so there's very few people, people like Mark Hart at Corriente, Kyle Bass, yeah. those guys are still the pure macro guys, but there's relatively few of them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's and and not for nothing. I think it's it's a it's a much more complicated uh, skill to basically look at everything, every asset class, and see see the big picture as opposed to just focusing on oh equity, long, short, or or one specific asset class. Um, anyway, okay, so let's move on a little bit here. So, global macro investor, you were writing this uh, institutional uh, grade research. And then uh, somewhere along the way, um, well, first of all, so at that time, there actually also wasn't a lot of independent uh, institutional grade research. I mean, it was all basically you pay the, the brokers and, and the banks and you're, you're paying for the research then. Now it's much more commoditized and there are a handful of independent research uh, researchers out there. What, at what point did you then decide, okay, um, this is not the end-all, be-all, and, and saw this uh, potential to disrupt uh, a, a massive uh, opportunity. Yeah, I was in Spain, and um, in my small village in Spain, there was another English guy, and he worked for the publishing industry. And over a few glasses of wine in the evening, we'd talk about some of the changes that was happening in the publishing business, how mm. it was being disrupted as things came online, e-books. And what became clear is the publishing business didn't know what to do. They were paralyzed by this new world. And then, you know, there was a merge between video, written word, everything online. And the publishing business was, as I said, paralyzed. Meanwhile, a friend of mine was running one of the television companies in the UK. And I remember, again, in Spain over a glass of wine, him saying, we don't know what to do because suddenly we're paying, you know, like a hundred million pounds for a TV license and nobody needs a TV license. We don't even know how to change wow. our business model. And that just, I was like, you know, there was my macro alarm bell going off. It's like, wow, <laughs> the entire media business from written publications to, to television is completely up for grabs and there's nothing they can do about it. So, so putting that with the fact that, that financial television was of such poor quality and had underserved people, I just knew there was an opportunity to go and do this right. So you mentioned 2008 as all, but now this, this conversation that you had, what, what year was that in, in Spain over a couple of glasses of wine? Um, that was probably extended from 2008. And then finally, um, I met Grant Williams, who was the other co-founder of Real Vision in 2012. And again, over another glass of wine, we, he, he had done some video and it, the light bulb went off, and I said, well, why don't we start this? I didn't know Grant. I'd never met him before. And so the next morning, we all got together and said, actually, that's not a dumb idea. Let's do it. And so that was 2013. We built out the whole platform and launched in 2014. So this idea had kind of been planted in your head. Now, you know, you, you like I said, you mentioned the financial crisis, and you also mentioned very briefly at the beginning that uh, mainstream media had, was played a big role in uh, sort of the fallout after the financial crisis, and not for nothing. I think a lot of uh, you know the, the not not the institutional investors, but the the individual investors were probably the ones that got hurt the most. Um, part of it is uh, the fault of the mainstream media and this sort of thing. So um, maybe t you could tell us a little bit about uh, how that affected your decision to to really try to seek out uh, something that could be disruptive in that entire industry? Yeah, what I realized was 
the media was busy treating finance as entertainment. You know, the truth of this, having got to know quite a lot of people in the industry, is they built financial television around sports presenting. Mm-hmm. So what they tried to do was make it exciting and racy, but what they didn't realize is this was people's life savings. Right. And so if you're that flippant with people's life savings, you're going to create an issue somewhere down the line. And you know that, that was the thing I just thought, this is wrong. I also realized how little truth in finance there is. You know, there, are, there is a narrative that is given to the world and it's often picked up by investment banks because they don't want to tell you the darker side of what may be going on in the world. But I thought, you know, there needs to be more balance. It can't be, you know, we can't go and get the other side of the story just from going to the Zero Hedge, the kind of famous website right. where people can find a lot of these stories. I thought, you know, that there needs to be more balance and more truth in finance. So it's all of these things that came together. Yeah, and it's also, uh, and I think as the, each year that goes by, a little bit of the barrier gets broken down. You know, now there's because of sort of online and assess- accessibility of information, it's it's actually much better. And if you just do a little bit of research, um, you know, on Twitter and 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 follow sort of news a little bit closer, not mainstream media, but maybe some you know some sites like yours, uh, then you can kind of get more a better picture. But still, there's this mass amount of uh, of the population, especially in the U.S., that are just uh, following CNBC or Jim Cramer or whatever is whatever they're pounding the whatever the the state or the the system is pounding the table with. Uh, they're at their at their mercy. So um, yes, and there's you know. there's another point being is that you know don't forget in the last fifteen years Google changed the world. What happened is the internet and uh, and Google basically meant that there was information everywhere. There was an overload of information. Before, let's go back 20, 25 years, it was hard to get the information. Now there's too much information. We're drowning in it. So the key elements of what's going on now is curation. You need to trust somebody to curate the very best or the most important things. Um, And that's really what we stand for is curation to make sure we focus people's attention on the things that really matter. Right. Okay. So, um, so you guys got together and you were like, okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to create real vision. What's, uh, what's sort of the tagline mission statement, uh, if you could, uh, say it in one line, so to speak. Well, it was truth in finance and that really remains it. And also it's kind of developed into a um, subset of that, which is the democratization of financial information. That's what the whole business is trying to do, to bring world-class um, you know, financial analysis and uh, the quality of the guests that we speak to and that kind of thing, uh, bring them to the average guy. So they get access to the smartest minds in the entire world. Um, and that's the, those are the two most important things. That's what drives us every day. Yeah, so so there's another uh, big divide that you just uh, touched upon. Not only uh, is there there's a there's a gap between institutional and, and you know individual investors. So uh, on the one hand, you have these large institutions that are paying banks a lot of millions of dollars to access their research and their deals and and this sort of thing flows, and then you have the individual investor that has CNBC and they have some of the uh, you know financial publishing. Uh, newsletters like uh, Stansberry Research and this sort of thing. Um, and that's pretty much all they have. And so uh, 
when you see something and and they have they have access to like three minute clips of uh warren buffett on cnbc giving an interview talking about coca-cola right so um or these great financial uh, people that usually at most will be a, a minute and a half on cnbc on the new york, on new york stock exchange trading floor or something like that so you can't really get to know them or or really hear what they have to say um, and so I feel like that real vision, when I first saw your product, uh, that was amazing to me to be able to have these really high production videos um, with seemingly uh, unreachable, inaccessible, uh, you know, investors that you were actually able to sit there and have long form interview with. Um, so I think that was one of the, 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 the most, the most uh, appealing things for me. And the fact that you could just pay a subscription and access that was great. Um, what other parts of your business model are available for subscribers there? Yeah, I think that, that subscription thing is very key because when we started this business, we could have gone down the, the route of Buzz, BuzzFeed or Business Insider and said, okay, let's let's just generate content, then try and get advertising dollars, go down the clickbait headlines, go mm. for the short attention span. And that's when we sought people's advice. They said, this is what you need to do. You know, people will not watch long form video, you know, uh, three to five minutes, perfect, punchy headlines, get it out for free. So um, us being contrarians through and through said, okay, we're going to go to long form, hour long conversations and subscription based. Um, and I think, you know, I, I the opportunities always lie where everybody else is not doing something. So that was the great opportunity. So we also then built out realizing that television was the great part. So, you know, we, we interview the world's most famous people. We build these kind of thematic storytelling about the, the market events that matter the most, whether it's, you know, what's going on in India right now or whether what's going on in the dollar or the bond markets, whatever that may be. So people get all the information they need. So then we thought, okay, let's look at the publishing industry because you know, people are underserved because there's a newsletter publishing industry that's driven by basically one firm, Agora. Right. And the the quality of the writers can be good, but generally speaking, they don't have the backgrounds and the experience that people in the institutional side have, like myself. Um, and so we thought, why not bring that quality to everybody? Um, and so that was the next thing we launched, Real Vision Publications, uh, we launched a publishing business. We've also launched a podcast called Adventures in Finance mm -hmm. to broaden the conversations about finance. Uh, we have a free newsletter called 2020, so to make sure that you know people who can't afford it have it too. And and we also have another more elite one called Macro Insiders. So we're rolling out products at an unbelievable rate, and expanding rapidly. That's incredible. So. Uh let me just ask is um so you guys basically got together and you just i'm talking from now a uh, entrepreneur startup uh, perspective so you guys had the idea you can't you came together you basically bootstrapped it um you, you guys aren't going taking any vc money you just are you just literally bootstrapping it as you go or well we we first bootstrapped it so mm -hmm. you know um we financed it for the first uh, couple of years of that, a large chunk of the money that we put in um, was building a video player platform uh, around um, um, a video streaming company, um, of which in and the website, which right. we ended up abandoning and torching well over a million dollars, which was st startup lesson number one. Is uh, <laughs> you know you really don't know what you're doing most of the time, 
Um, so that was one of the things that that we did as we as we kind of developed out from there, and then. Yeah, I mean that was you know. What was the uh, what was the reason that you had to scrap the 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 one version? Yeah, because again, we we didn't know what we were doing, so we sought advice, and so we went to see this digital um, development agency, and they said, "Yeah, we can do this for you." And we planned out this beautiful website, and it you know looked great. But the problem is, is they built it not as software really, but as a website. Now, we had hundreds of videos coming on, thousands of people coming onto the platform, and also it just didn't deal with the number of browsers out there. So the whole thing fell over. We went live, um, and I was in Miami at the time. Uh, Remy, the other founder, was in Spain. Damien was in London, and Grant was in Singapore. And we were like, press the button to go live. We'd already had kind of one and a half, two thousand people subscribe before launch. And the whole thing just went nuts as nobody's browser could <laughs> could allow allow them to watch the video. So in the end, we tried to piece it together. We spent more and more and more money trying to fix the mess that we created. And then one of our subscribers wrote to us and said, "Listen, guys, you're making a mess of this. I know how to do this, and I can do it for you." So oh, we wow. said, "Thank you." And so um, so uh, a Swedish developer based in Malaysia came and joined us and uh, really helped us change the thing around. Now we have a fantastic platform. So uh, so is the core of your uh, platform is uh, financial publishing? Like that's the, the backbone, would you say? And then uh, building different layers on top of that? Um, it's basically really video or television is really where, we, where the core of our business is. But we okay, want to reach right. as many people with that mission of democratizing financial information uh, in, in as many ways as we can. Hence why we have a podcast, because we want to make some stuff free. The newsletter, 2020, we want to make sure that people get good quality information. Uh, if not, we're not doing our mission. But we also want to make sure we bring access to some, to give people access to some of the best possible things out there. So Real Vision Publications is basically a compendium of 30 of the world's best newsletter writers and research providers and we give them access to some of that research timely and then we build a digest to distill that all down to what's going in markets right now and how you can use all of these incredible uh, writers and researchers um, and to, to build an investment theme and understand what's going on in the world. So it's a multifaceted thing but television is the core of what we do because we think that's the big opportunity. Yeah, it seems like any company now that is not embracing uh, and transforming themselves into some sort of a media company with, you know, uh, not just not just talking about social media and this sort of thing. But like you said, you know, you have to have all the different outlets. You have to you have to be on video. You have to be on audio. You have to have your publications. And it's just kind of uh, uh, pay to like you have to. That's what you have to pay to, to sit down at the table, yeah. so to speak. Um, yeah, that's that's true. However, the really big opportunity, if you look at what's going on in the world right now, there is. It's one of the biggest changes in the history of the media business. Is that everybody wants to get into video? Video mm -hmm. is the new engagement platform of choice for everybody. So there's a mad panic for video, and. All of the platforms have changed because cable is being disbanded. You know, the whole thing is changing. So everybody's becoming a platform provider, be it right. Amazon, be it Netflix, be it Apple, you know, be it HBO, be it Disney. Everybody is involved in building a platform at the mobile phone companies. The problem is, is nobody's a content provider. Mm. So when, 
we are an original content provider in a platform world. So that makes us a very highly attractive proposition for many people, and particularly of the demographic that we have, because unlike CNBC that appeals, the average viewer of CNBC is 63 years old, we have students, we have deals with Cambridge University, we have deals with MIT, we have, you know, we have students on, we have tons of millennials, we have tons of Gen Xers and baby boomers. So the average audience skew of ours is young, massively educated, um, and well-paid. So you know, it's a very attractive demographic to walk into this big platform world. I think most, uh, Ral, I think most, the reason why most people don't go after it is because they just can't. <laughs> you, I mean, you're going after everything. You're going after the platform <laughs> and the content curation, which is incredible. I mean, you're literally like, going to, to, to the bat against the big boys, uh, which is awesome to see. Um, I'm definitely cheering you guys on. What, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on the future of uh, sort of financial publishing? You know, I mean, you mentioned Agora Financial, which they obviously are the, probably the largest in the world. Um, and have a almost a stronghold on that industry, but I see, and I see some of their you know some of their gurus and this sort of thing trying to do a little bit more on 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 the media side, but not fully uh, embracing it. Um, they're still very much uh, sort of businesses based off of that email uh, subscribers and, and selling their newsletters. Um, is there? I mean, they're obviously kind of in the same field as you. Do you think that? model is going to eventually have to change whether they like it or not? Um, we know the Agora guys well at various parts of Agora and listen, you know, they are the best in the world at what they do and what they do is direct response marketing. It's basically email driven marketing um, and they're stunningly good at it. Um, they have some good writers as well um, and you know, some of it is not quite the way we would sell things. You know, they're a little bit aggressive in their sales model, but they're exceptional at what they do. But, you know, we keep getting called in by various people at Agora for a chat because they're like, what you guys are doing is, we, we kind of, we understand that this is probably the future of the business. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they don't really know how to change because much like an incumbent of the past in the television industry, you know, they've got this huge machine that churns out cash, but they can see the disruptor, but they don't know what to do about it because they can't replicate it. Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Um, so you guys are in a very interesting space and it's exciting to see your uh, your progress and, and how you guys uh, continue. What uh, what are your sort of uh, plans and goals for sort of say next 12, 18 months? Is there, are there big pushes in certain areas that you're trying to make at certain metrics that you're trying to hit? Uh, yeah, we have very big plans. <laughs> so, um, we're ludicrously ambitious. Um, so the next thing is we are launching, and I can't talk too much about all of these yet because they're not fully launched, but we're launching a second TV channel, which is solely about trade ideas, and it's for brokerage houses to offer to their customers. So it's, a, it's a, probably the world's first wholesale distribution TV channel, um, oh. which we are launching in about a month's time. So that is hot off the press. I don't think anybody knows about that yet. Um, cool. So that is coming. Um, and we're doing that, um, distributing that in conjunction with Thomson Reuters, who are um, our partners on, on some of this. And in addition, we've got an even bigger project that's launching in 2018, which is really the kind of flag plant in, in where we're going. And I'll just allude to it as the vice of finance. Oh man! Then we're all going to have to tune in and and and, and subscribe. Then so we, so we stay 
stay in the loop. Um, so, Raul, as you have gone on this journey, you know, you've obviously uh, been in sort of the highest levels of finance and trading. And then now, uh, as you've transitioned and you're, you're now, you know, building a great company, um, what, what are some, some of the sort of bigger, biggest challenges that you've faced uh, not as an investor, but more on the entrepreneurial side, um, because it's in many ways it's uh, similar, but in many ways it's vastly different. Uh, being an entrepreneur and just being an investor, where you can kind of just, you know, uh, I, I feel like that's something that's not more natural. But then being an entrepreneur, you're probably faced with a bunch of fire drills all day long that you never really imagined. So, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced, or or just uh, maybe some pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening to our show today? You know, I never really understood when Reid Hoffman talked about a startup being kind of jumping out of a plane and then trying to assemble a parachute on the way down. You know, <laughs> it is exactly that. It is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's incredibly intellectually rewarding. There are so many challenges because what you realize is how little you know. You need to accumulate rapid industry knowledge. You need to accumulate management knowledge. You know, I'm not used to dealing with video editors, uh, millennial video editors. It's not a world I've come from, but I have to learn and I have to get good at management skills and you make all of the mistakes. Um, just the sheer amount of decision making when you're accelerating as fast as we are. I think our staff have grown sevenfold in 18 months. Um, it's It becomes incredibly difficult to keep control of the organization. Then it's realizing things that didn't matter really to me in the past, but stuff like processes and structure, you know, that's not that, you know, if you ask my friends, those are not the things that they would talk to me about um, or assume that I knew anything about. But I've had to learn about process, get the process right, get the structure right, because without those things, you cannot build a business. It will keep falling over. And, you know, we, we fail endlessly every single day. It's another thing you hear from startup entrepreneurs is, you know, failure is part of it all. And right. we fail endlessly every single day. But the point being is every time you fail, you have to pick yourself up, figure out why you failed, and then jump over that hurdle and keep going. You can't see hurdles as brick walls. You have to see everything as a small speed bump. Just keep your eye on the horizon, keep moving forwards, but without leaving a trail of destruction behind you. So you need to have the right staff <laughs> and the right infrastructure. And, you know, it is really hard to do. But it's, you know, it is one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. It's incredible. Um, uh, last sort of question on Real Vision. Uh, big picture sort of goal, uh, if any, if you guys have even thought about it, which I'm sure you have. Um, are you thinking, like, do you want to be, is it more about legacy? Like, you guys want to, are going to go down, like, this is what you guys want to be remembered for? Is it like, you want to list this as an IPO? You want to exit this, uh, you know, for a huge multiple to a larger company, any thoughts on that? Um, look, I mean, the first thing is I actually, and you know, it sounds flippant, but I do want to change the world. You know, we can change the financial narrative. I have an opportunity mm -hmm. to do it, and I really want to make take that seriously and do that. So that is the first most important thing. You know, we have um, we we took external capital for the first time about eighteen months ago, uh, mainly from friends and family, which are many of the world's most famous hedge fund guys. You know, personally investing mm -hmm. in us. Um, one of the biggest financial TV incumbents actually offered to buy 25% of us in our first year, but we had to turn them wow. down. Um, we are now just about to raise a second capital raise now and moving forwards to, for these much larger plays. Um, 
Listen, we do understand that it's a very attractive business for many people in the end, um, but really what we're trying to focus on is doing what our mission is first, to build out all of this great product that we've got coming and just to make sure we're engaging as many people as possible in this new world of OTT platforms developing everywhere and a fragmented television audience that you know is underserved in this entire area. You know, I think one of the benefits of being a, a, a somewhat more seasoned entrepreneur is that you're not like a 22-year-old millennial that would, would uh, you know, probably blink at uh, f- the first, you know, large exit uh, check that was handed to them. So I think that that actually helps. And it's funny because it, the more you kind of read and hear about entrepreneurs, like most of them are... Are, are older and they've had years of experience in a certain industries where they develop expertise and decide to build a company. You know, you only hear about the one-off Mark Zuckerbergs here and there or the, the Snapchat guys or whatever, but most of the entrepreneurs in the world um, that I've studied and, and met and are, are very seasoned in a particular field that they have expertise in. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's good to have that grand vision, but I think that the longer that you can hold on and you don't have to, you don't have the pressure of, oh, I need to have a paycheck or I need to pay the bills. Um, but you can actually achieve uh, greater things, the better. Um, so Raul, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it was, uh, really, really good connecting with you and hearing about the great stuff that you guys are working on there at Real Vision. Um, we certainly wish you the best of luck. Where is the best place for our audience, uh, to find you, follow you, connect with you personally, and also, uh, your company and learn more about what you guys are doing there? Yeah. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter, which is at Raul, R-A-O-U-L, G-M-I. Um, that's, um, I'm very active on Twitter, so anybody can find me there. And, uh, if they want to check out real vision, realvision.com, pretty simple. There's tons of free stuff. There's podcasts, there's all sorts of stuff. So, you know, you don't have to pay for anything to get a look at our world and see what we're doing. Um, and you'll see how kind of, uh, unique we approach, you know, finance world with kind of graffiti and kind of cool music. And you'll realize how disruptive it is compared to the world that's out there. Totally. I, I mean, I can I can vouch for your your sort of aesthetic and design and quality. It's just uh, like you said, unlike anything else you've seen, definitely not uh, CNBC that you're going to be looking at. Um, so is the I guess 2020 and uh, and the, the podcast is good too, adventures in finance. So I guess those are two good starting points, right, for listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, get a feel for the stuff that's out there. And, you know, if you, if, if you do have an interest in the finance world, then, you know, Real Vision, the television side is fantastic. If you want some research, publication side is good as well. But, uh, you know, just go and have a look around some of the stuff that we've got um, and you'll enjoy it. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Raul. I really appreciate your time. Brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right. Good luck. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. 
If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness. 